0: And welcome to the Historia Germanica podcast. I'm your host, Willem Kahn. Thank you very much for listening. In 1791, the slaves of the French colony of Saint Domingue rose up in arms against their masters, setting into motion a 13 year long struggle for freedom. The Haitian Revolution, as it has come to be known by history, is the only successful slave revolt in documented history. It was also a massively complex and multifaceted conflict that warrants close analysis. In this series of the Historia Dramatica podcast, we will be taking a close look at the Haitian Revolution, its causes, the events themselves, as well as the effects these events had on the wider world. But before we begin the narrative, there's some housekeeping items on the agenda for today. Firstly, I'd like to officially welcome you all to Season 2 of the Historia Dramatica podcast. After a brief hiatus, we are back and I am very excited to share with you all this series on the Haitian Revolution. This is the longest I have written to date, it's nine parts long, and the last episode should conclude in late December of this year. If, in the meantime, you want other podcast content, you can support the show by pledging $5 a month on Patreon. This will allow you access to bonus content, such as bloopers, Q&A sessions, interviews with professionals in the field, discussions of various topics ranging from alternate history to amusing historical anecdotes, and more. These bonus episodes will be uploaded on the first of every month alongside the regular episodes of the podcast. Anyway, without further ado, let's get into the narrative. To fully understand the Haitian Revolution, it's necessary to begin nearly 300 years before the outbreak of the Slave Revolt in 1492. This was the year that Christopher Columbus made his fateful voyage to the New World. The site where he first made landfall was a large island some 76,000 square kilometers in size, in the middle of the Caribbean Sea. The natives of this island called it Aiti, a word meaning mountainous land. The Spanish explorers who landed there bestowed upon it another name, one that left no doubt as to who they felt the island truly belonged to now. Hispaniola, meaning the Spanish island. Hispaniola was, as historian Laurent Dubois phrased it, ground zero of European colonialism in the New World. It was the site of the first European settlement in the Americas. Admittedly, the first few attempts at founding permanent settlements on the island ended in failure, but the Spanish were persistent, and by 1496, they had established a permanent presence on the island. The initial peace between the native Taino people and the Spanish quickly shattered. Eager to exploit the natural resources of the New World, namely gold, The Spanish, with their more advanced technology, were able to subjugate the Taino, and force them into a state of quasi-slavery, under the encomienda system. I, of course, say quasi-slavery, because technically, under this aforementioned encomienda system, the Spanish were entitled only to the labor of the natives. They were not considered chattel, or property. Still, conditions for native laborers were brutal. Untold numbers of them were quite literally worked to death in the mines of Hispaniola. Those who attempted to escape or rebel were brutally killed by their Spanish overlords. More often than not, they were torn apart by dogs. By far, however, the biggest killer of the Taino people was disease. The Spanish brought along with them a whole host of old-world diseases, including malaria and smallpox, for which the Native Americans had no immunity. The effect on the population of the island was dramatic. From a population of between approximately 500,000 and 750,000 in 1492, only 30,000 natives were left on the island by 1514. A few decades later, the native population of Hispaniola had all but vanished. Only scant traces were left of its original inhabitants. One French colonist later wrote that on his sugar plantation, quote, each new hole dug turned up some new vestiges of the existence of this race, now erased from the list of humankind. End quote. Skeletal remains and tools are the only evidence that the island was ever inhabited prior to Columbus's arrival. To quote one of the island's later residents, quote, The regret of the philosopher is awakened when he thinks about the fact that, from a people so numerous, there is not one left to enlighten us about its history. End quote. As the native population was decimated by enslavement and epidemic, The Spanish were forced to look towards alternative sources of labor in order to make the colony profitable. To this end, they looked to the African continent. In 1503, the first enslaved Africans arrived on the shores of Hispaniola to replace the beleaguered natives. At first, they were made to work in the gold mines like their unfortunate predecessors, but soon their labor was required to produce a much different commodity that itself was worth its weight in gold, sugar. Columbus introduced sugarcane to Hispaniola on his second voyage in 1493, and, by the early 16th century, the cultivation, harvesting, production, and export of it became the principal economic activity of the island. However, the economic importance of Hispaniola began to decline shortly thereafter, as the Spanish ventured further westward, colonizing the neighboring island of Cuba, and from there, launching expeditions to the American mainland conquering the Aztec and Inca empires and looting their treasures. Soon, Hispaniola, once the center of the Spanish Empire in the New World, was relegated to the margins. While Hispaniola's fortunes continued to wane into the 17th century, the British and French successfully challenged Portuguese and Spanish hegemony in the New World. Pirates and privateers were the vanguard of British and French colonial expansion in the Caribbean. These buccaneers raided Spanish possessions throughout the region and grew increasingly powerful. As more and more British and French subjects flocked to the region seeking fame and fortune, they began to establish settlements of their own, which eventually came under the administration of their mother countries. The first French colonies in the Caribbean were the islands of Guadeloupe and Martinique, both of which were founded in 1635. The western third or so of the island of Hispaniola had been neglected by the Spanish throughout most of its history, and was very sparsely populated, French subjects took advantage of this and began to colonize the western coast of Hispaniola in the mid to late 17th century, and the colony was officially recognized by the King of France in 1665. In 1697, French pirates raided the Spanish town of Cartagena in what is now Colombia, carting off some two million livres worth of loot. It was partially as a result of this defeat that Spain officially ceded the western third of the island of Hispaniola to France, in the 1697 Treaty of Ryswick, The French called their new colony Saint Domingue, after the capital of Spanish Hispaniola, Santo Domingo, which had become an unofficial name for the entire island. Some of those who participated in the raid on Cartagena invested their shares of the loot in this new colony, founding the first French plantations in San Domingue. At first, the principal crop of French San Domingue was tobacco, However, the French and Saint-Domingue could not compete economically with their British rivals in Virginia, so they looked towards alternative revenue streams. They briefly experimented with indigo, although the production costs ultimately proved prohibitive. It was not long before they settled on the old reliable commodity, sugar. Before the colonization of the Americas, sugar, which could not be cultivated in Europe, had to be sourced from Africa or Asia, and as such, it was an incredibly rare and expensive commodity, consumed almost entirely by elites. As Europeans began to colonize the Americas, the climates of which were more suitable for sugar production, they began to produce the commodity in larger and larger quantities and exporting it back to Europe, where there was a massive market eager to consume it. All this is to say that sugar was an incredibly lucrative commodity. However, the costs of production were quite high. The cultivation and processing of sugarcane is extremely labor-intensive, not to mention physically dangerous process. The cultivation and processing of sugarcane is an extremely labor-intensive, not to mention physically dangerous, process. This was not the kind of work that most Europeans wanted to do, and so it was that the use of slaves was deemed necessary. As historian Carolyn Fick put it so succinctly, quote, "There could be no sugar without slaves." So, as sugar plantations proliferated quickly throughout Saint-Domingue in the years following its annexation by France, so too did slave imports dramatically increase. In a period of less than two decades, the slave population of Saint-Domingue exploded from about 3,500 to more than 9,000. By 1750, the population ballooned even further to 150,000. On the eve of the Haitian Revolution, the Society of Saint-Domingue was split into two distinct groups, the slaves and the free. But among the free, there were further divisions along racial and class line. At the top, there were the big whites, the wealthy plantation-owning class. Below them was the underclass of white laborers, merchants, craftsmen, and whatnot that were called the small whites. And of course, somewhere in this equation were the free people of color non-enslaved people of African descent, who often owned property themselves, but whose heritage and appearance prevented them from enjoying the social privileges of the big whites. I will give a detailed explanation of each of these socioeconomic racial castes in detail, beginning, of course, with the slaves. Slaves could be first and foremost distinguished from each of these other aforementioned groups in one very crucial way. They were not free. They were considered chattel, or property of their owners. Life for a slave in saint was, all too often, to borrow a quote from Thomas Hobbes, nasty, brutish, and short. The life of a slave could begin in Africa or in saint itself. During the heyday of the Atlantic slave trade, the vast majority of slaves were sourced from West and Central Africa. Far from being indifferent to the slaves' nations of origin, many slave owners placed great importance on such information, and attributed different qualities to slaves originating from different nations. For instance, Senegalese slaves were valued for their sobriety and quietness. The Arata people of modern Benin were seen as being particularly skilled at agriculture. Alternatively, the Bambara people had a reputation among slave owners as deceitful livestock thieves. The Igbo people of modern Nigeria were seen as liabilities due to their tendency to kill themselves, in the belief that their souls would return to Africa upon their deaths. As a result of prejudices such as these, many plantations on Saint-Domingue hosted large concentrations of recently arrived slaves from the same country of origin. For example, people of Congolese extraction made up 40% of the slaves in Saint-Domingue at the time of the revolution. As Europeans were generally unwilling to venture into the interior of the so-called Dark Continent, European slave traders generally relied on African intermediaries to capture and enslave people whom they would then purchase. African leaders who were willing to sell their fellow Africans to European slave traders often did not see such kinship between themselves and those whom they were sending to a fate arguably worse than death. They viewed these people as others, members of a different ethnic group to their own. As a result, the Atlantic slave trade was, in large part, fueled by sectarian inter-ethnic warfare on the African continent, with the victors capturing the vanquished and auctioning off their numbers into slavery. An example of such a dynamic can be found in the Congo Civil War of 1665 1709, which many historians consider a major driving force in the Atlantic slave trade. The extent to which Europeans provoked and amplified the severity of such conflicts is a matter of debate among historians. Although there was more often than not an ethnic aspect to this decision, criminals and other undesirable elements of society were occasionally sold off to slave traders to get rid of them. Once the transaction was completed, the newly enslaved were in for a harrowing voyage across the Atlantic Ocean to their eventual destinations. Known as the Middle Passage, The mortality of slaves in this phase of the journey is estimated to be more than 12 percent. Crammed into the dark, dank interiors of massive slave ships, African captives were subjected to all sorts of privations, disease, starvation, overcrowding, etc. Many chose to jump overboard and drown themselves, rather than to allow their suffering to continue. As historian C.L.R. James wrote, No place on Earth concentrated as much human misery, as the hold of a slave ship." End quote. We may never know exactly how many slaves died while en route to the New World. Upon arrival in Saint-Domingue, these slaves would then be auctioned off to their new owners. Upon purchase, the slave was then branded with a hot iron that officially marked them as their master's property. If a slave was to change hands during their lifetime, they would be branded again by the new owner. The sheer volume of slaves imported to Saint-Domingue in the years preceding the revolution is truly remarkable. Over the 18th century, some 685,000 slaves were imported to Saint-Domingue. As the slave trade only continued to grow, between 10,000 and 20,000 new slaves were imported to Saint-Domingue in any given year. New Africans simply had to be imported at such a high volume due to their abysmally high mortality rate. The average life expectancy for a newly arrived African slave in Saint-Domingue was a year or less. As they were, quite literally, worked to death. The demographics reflected this. Two-thirds of slaves on Saint-Domingue had been born in Africa. The remainder, known as Creoles, had been born in the colony itself. Slaves born in Saint-Domingue had a number of advantages over their newly arrived counterparts. For one, they could already speak Creole, the language of the colony that was an amalgamation of French and elements from various African languages. As one can imagine, the language barrier was another hurdle that the new arrivals were forced to overcome. Furthermore, Creole slaves could rely on support from local networks of kin. They were more likely to hold privileged and specialized positions on the plantation, and their closer proximity to the masters meant that they were more likely to be emancipated. However, as historian Laurent Dubois, author of one of the best and most comprehensive accounts of the Haitian Revolution, writes, to draw such clear-cut distinctions between Creoles and African-born slaves would be rather misleading. As most Creoles were, more often than not, no more than one or two generations removed from Africa, language was just one of the many aspects of culture that emerged from this collision of worlds that the institution of slavery facilitated. Religion proved to be another important aspect of the slaves' lives, as religious traditions from Africa melded with the Catholicism practiced by the French to form what is known as Haitian voodoo. Voodoo is a polytheistic belief system with its own pantheon of deities and a rather complex mythology. Despite being polytheistic, many practitioners of voodoo engage in both the rites of voodoo and Roman Catholicism, and see no contradiction between the two seemingly incompatible religions. Voodoo has a rather infamous reputation in the Western world, as it is culturally associated with witchcraft, black magic, and necromancy. However, the reality is that voodoo offered the slaves of Saint-Domingue a powerful form of solace, however fleeting, which they found in its rituals of song and dance, and what's more, it provided the slaves with a sense of community that transcended the physical boundaries of the plantation. In fact, voodoo, at least in part, laid the foundations for the slave revolt that would eventually metamorphosize into the Haitian Revolution. But I'm getting way ahead of myself. For the master's part, they recognized the subversive potential of this new slave religion and made every effort to suppress it, and characterize it as an unholy, malevolent influence on the slaves. But these attempts at repression were largely unsuccessful, as voodoo remains an integral component of Haitian society even to this day. Slave masters generally allotted their slaves one day a week, during which they were not required to labor in the fields, Sunday. During this time, the slaves would tend to their own gardens, relatively small plots of land allotted to them by the plantation owners, where they were allowed to grow whatever crops they desired. According to a first-hand account of plantation life, slaves generally liked to grow crops such as cassava, sweet potatoes, taro, yams, pumpkins, bananas, peas, and pineapples. It was in this way that the slaves were expected to provide for their own sustenance. This was seen as a clever, cost-saving measure by the plantation owners, who did not want to have to feed their slaves from their own stores of food. However, in years where there was drought or a particularly poor harvest, the slaves would be unable to grow enough food to feed themselves, and the masters, typically unprepared for such an eventuality, did not hold enough food in reserve to feed all their slaves. The result was that many slaves starved to death. On their Sundays off, most masters allowed their slaves to leave the confines of the plantation, and to go to the nearest town to attend mass, and to sell their surplus crops. They would return to the plantations later that day with foodstuffs such as meat and bread, tobacco, rum, or new items of clothing. If a slave was resourceful enough, they might earn enough money from the sort of bartering to eventually buy their own freedom. These days off granted slaves unique opportunities for socialization, as they mingled with slaves from other plantations, far from their own, in the marketplace, and in the church. Some urban whites complained that the masses attended by slaves, typically held after the regular white masses and led by black community leaders, were raucous affairs, with much singing and dancing. Masters generally saw this practice of allowing slaves this small degree of freedom as harmless. However it would be exactly this practice that would ultimately allow for slaves from far afield to eventually plot their rebellion. But again, I am getting ahead of myself here. As I stated earlier, the work of cultivating sugarcane was both labor-intensive and physically dangerous, hence why it was deemed work unsuitable for even the poorest of the small whites. From dawn until late in the night, the slave toiled away in the sugarcane fields, with only a two-hour break at midday, preventing them from dropping dead of exhaustion. Irrigation canals had to be dug and maintained, the soil had to be tilled, the cane had to be planted and harvested. The harvested sugar cane then had to be fed twice through a mill, then crushed them to release their precious juice. These mills were extremely dangerous machines, and there was an ever-present danger that one would get a finger stuck in the machinery, which would then practically pull the rest of the arm along with it. Many slaves lost entire limbs in this way. Between this and the danger of being hacked by a machete in the process of harvesting the sugarcane, the sight of a one-armed slave was all too common on the sugar plantations. The sugarcane juice would then be boiled in massive vats, the dangers of which should be self-evident. The process of cultivating, harvesting, and processing coffee and indigo, which would become San domingues second and third largest exports respectively, was far less hazardous and labor-intensive than sugar, but that did not make the masters any less cruel. Eyewitness testimony from a Swiss traveler to Saint-Domingue provides the reader with a vivid image of life on a sugar plantation. Quote, There were about a hundred men and women of different ages, all occupied in digging ditches in a cane field. The sun shone down with full force on their bodies. Their limbs, weighed down by the heat, fatigued with the weight of their picks, And by the resistance of the clay soil baked hard enough to break their implements strained themselves to overcome every obstacle a mournful silence reigned exhaustion was stamped upon every face but the hour of rest had not yet come the pitiless eye of the manager patrolled the gang and several foremen with long whips periodically moved between them giving stinging blows to all who worn out by fatigue were compelled to take a rest men or women, young or old, end quote. Life for domestic slaves, or slaves with specialized roles on the plantation, was also less difficult, but they were subjected to their own sets of horrors as well. It is worth bearing in mind that this cast of relatively privileged slaves was also quite small in number when compared to the masses laboring in the fields. Slaves with roles such as craftsmen, butlers, carriage drivers, and others were subjected to far less back-breaking work, and were generally valued much more than the field slaves, and were treated accordingly. Domestic slaves, who were responsible for running the plantation household, were also a relatively privileged class of slaves. This more mundane sort of work was typically reserved for women, who were generally thought to have weaker constitutions than men, and thus were not suitable for hard labor. These domestic slaves cooked, cleaned, did laundry, and so on, but their close proximity to their owners often made them the subject of their sexual advances, which could hardly be refused, with the specter of torture and death constantly looming over them. For a slave owner to engage in a sexual relationship with a woman who was considered his property was actually rather common. Should a female slave bear her master a child, the owner would sometimes grant freedom to both the mother and the child, but this was not always the case. Due to the high mortality rates of slaves, owners would also encourage female slaves to procreate with the male slaves, thereby sparing them the expense of having to go to market to buy new imports. Harsh penalties were meted out to women who chose to have abortions, as they were considered to be depriving their owner of a piece of human property. Slave owners and their overseers literally held the power of life and death over their slaves, and it was a power they were allowed to exercise all too frequently to say nothing of the torture and the mutilations. Acts of insubordination, however small, were carried out by slaves on a fairly regular basis. This could be something as insignificant as stealing food from the plantation stores, or feigning sickness to get out of work, or as serious as full-on armed insurrection. The most common form of corporal punishment for the slaves was the whip. Use of the whip was permitted, and even mandated, by the Code Noir, a decree promulgated by King Louis XIV in 1685 to regulate the treatment of slaves. Slaves were subjected to a certain amount of strikes with the whip, depending on the severity of the crime. Oftentimes, a slave could be whipped to death. Some of the more sadistic slave owners got inventive with their punishments. They applied salt and other irritants to open wounds inflicted by the whip. They doused their slaves with boiling liquids. They burned them alive roasting them as if they were a cut of meat over an open fire. They filled their orifices with gunpowder and blew them to pieces with a match. They buried them alive. They restrained them and smeared them with sugarcane juice so that flies would devour their flesh. There was no limit to the cruelty that the masters could inflict upon their slaves. Some of the harshest punishments were reserved for those slaves who attempted to escape. Known as maroons, these slaves, upon being recaptured, or branded with a hot iron, and had one of their ears cut off. Repeat offenders were simply just executed. The Code Noir did, despite sanctioning such punishments, also provide the slaves with limited protections, and meted out punishments to masters who were excessively cruel to their slaves. However, the accusations of slaves against cruel masters were disregarded by Saint-Domingue's courts, and these abuses continued unabated, a century after the issuing of the Code Noir, There is one notable exception to this, the Lejeune case. Nicholas Lejeune was the owner of a coffee plantation in northern Saint-Domingue. He had long had a reputation for being excessively brutal in his treatment of his slaves, and his slaves died at alarmingly high rates. Several times in the past his slaves had attempted to bring accusations against their master, but their testimony was inadmissible and their cases were dismissed. Lejeune punished these accusing slaves by breaking them on the wheel, a particularly brutal form of capital punishment whereby the victim was tortured by having all of their limbs broken before finally being put to death. In March of 1788, Lejeune tortured and murdered at least six slaves, whom he erroneously suspected of plotting to poison him. Slave owners particularly feared being poisoned at the hands of their slaves, and Lejeune punished two of the accused women by burning their legs, nearly to the point of disintegration, and chaining them up in a dungeon on his plantation, leaving them to die of their injuries, and threatening a similar fate upon any slave who dared denounce him. Despite these threats, 14 slaves braved their master's punishment, and slipped away from the plantation in secret. They traveled to the city of Le Cap, the administrative center of northern Saint-Domingue, where they brought these accusations of their master before a judge. Luckily for them, the judge in question was unusually sympathetic to the plight of the slaves, and what's more, the crimes of which Lejeune was being accused were so heinous that the judge had little choice but to dispatch officers to the plantation to investigate. They were able to find the women in question. One had already died, having been strangled to death by the metal collar that restrained her. The other lay, badly burned, and would die shortly thereafter. The governor of Saint-Domingue ordered the arrest of Lejeune and he was brought to trial. It was a fairly cut-and-dry case. Any court with even a modicum of respect for the rule of law would have convicted Lejeune. The prosecution had clear evidence of the crimes of which Lejeune was being accused. Even according to the terms of the Code Noir, Lejeune should have been given a hefty fine, at the very least. Lejeune defended himself thusly, quote, There is not a single colonist who has not been alarmed at the bold action of my slaves, who does not fear that another such event will cause a violent outburst, and who does not shudder at the thought of my slaves winning the case. The possible consequences are enormous. My cause in this case is the cause of every colonist. The unhappy condition of the slave leads them to naturally hate us. It is only by force and violence that they can be controlled. It is not fear of the law or its justice that keeps the slave from stabbing the owner. It is their awareness of the master's absolute power over them. If you remove this restraint, there is nothing that they will not dare. End quote. Lejeune's defense rested on the simple reality of saint society. The slaves had to be held in check by the constant threat of coercion. If slaves could be given legal means by which to resist this coercion, it would threaten the very foundation of the social order. Several other wealthy planters came to Lejeune's defense and wrote a petition to the court, essentially stating that, for the good of the colony, Lejeune's crimes, regardless of their veracity, should be covered up. What's more, they asserted that the 14 slaves who had come forward to accuse their master should each be given 50 lashes of the whip for their insolence. Eventually, the courts bowed to pressure from the planter class, and essentially acquitted Lejeune. The fate of the 14 slaves who accused him before the court is not known. The Lejeune case laid bare the realities of Saint-Domingue society. And, what's more, it illustrated the futility of using legal means to fight back against the unrestrained cruelty of the slave masters. Given the slaves' lack of legal recourse to address their grievances, is it any wonder why they were so inclined towards insubordination and rebellion? As I briefly mentioned earlier, slaves who managed to escape their captivity were known as maroons. These escaped slaves fled high into the mountains of Saint-Domingue, where they resisted the efforts of colonial police forces to return them to their masters. Acquiring the means to defend themselves, these Maroons formed sizable communities, or bands, and together these bands would carry out small-scale raids on plantations, and generally made themselves a thorn in the side of the colonial authorities. In armed confrontations with said colonial authorities, the Maroons gained valuable skills of survival and warfare. It is a topic hotly debated by historians of the Haitian Revolution as to exactly how much credit these Maroon communities should be given in fomenting and aiding the slave revolt of 1791, given that they were rather small in number, especially when compared to the larger Maroon communities of neighboring British Jamaica. It is true that upon rising up in 1791, rebellious slaves widely utilized the same sorts of tactics pioneered by the Maroons, and indeed... Some of the rebel leaders who emerged out of the revolt of 1791 were themselves former Maroons, but more importantly, the mere existence of the Maroons provided the slaves with concrete proof that their freedom could be won by use of force, if only they had the means and the willpower to fight back against their oppressors. One Maroon leader in particular who served as an inspiration to slaves across Saint-Domingue was named Francois Macandal. Macandal's per Particular origins are murky, although his purported command of the Arabic language and professed Islamic faith suggests that he was captured and sold into slavery in modern-day Mali or Senegal. Upon escaping his plantation and fleeing into the mountains of Saint-Domingue, Makandal waged war against the Big Whites in a rather unconventional way, through the use of poison. He had learned how to create poison from various plants that was virtually undetectable, He secretly distributed this poison to those who were still enslaved, and they, in turn, found ways to poison their own masters. He also led more conventional raids on slave plantations, burning their buildings and crops, and putting their masters to the sword. Macandall's ultimate plan was to coordinate a mass campaign whereby the slaves of each plantation in the north would poison their masters all at once, and Macandall and his followers would raid the plantations as they lay dying. Before he could carry out this plan, however, Macandall was betrayed by someone in his inner circle, and, although he was subsequently captured and executed by being burnt alive in 1758, his legend lived on. Macandall's execution was a very public affair, meant to be a warning to those who were still enslaved. As the flames began to engulf his body, Macandall managed to break free of the post to which he was tied. Immediately he was restrained by his executioners and thrown back into the fire whereupon he died, but the slaves who were in attendance that day took his nearly successful escape attempt as proof of his supernatural abilities. Many slaves believed that his spirit had managed to flee his body somehow, and that Mackendall was still out there, somewhere in the mountains and the hills, awaiting the day that he could carry out his final revenge upon the planters who had oppressed his brethren. Mackendall had achieved a mythical status among the inhabitants of the island. To the plantation owning class, Macandall became a demon, one, who's fomented, one who fomented slave insurrection and was capable of killing them through the use of so-called black magic. It is thanks to the proliferation of the legend of Macandall that a strong paranoia took root among slave owners of being poisoned by their own slaves, a paranoia that persisted well after Macandall's execution and can clearly be seen exhibited in the Lejeune case. To the enslaved, however, Macandall became a folk hero, an inspiration and his image can today be found on currency issued by the government of Haiti. According to a likely apocryphal story, Mackandal, while giving a speech to his compatriots, placed three colored scars in vases of water, one yellow, one white, and one black. As he pulled each out of the vase, he said that the yellow one represented the original inhabitants of the island, the white represented the island's current masters, and the final one, the black one, represented, in his words, quote, those who will remain masters of this land, end quote. That should do it for the discussion of the slaves. Hopefully, you now have a pretty concrete understanding of the plight of the enslaved on Saint-Domingue, and have seen the seeds of the slave revolts of 1791. Now, let us discuss the various classes of free people in Saint-Domingue, starting with the so-called Small Whites. The small whites were the sailors, day laborers, artisans, craftsmen, petty criminals, small-time merchants, and so on that made up the underclass of Saint-Domingue's urban population. For those of you already familiar with French Revolutionary history, the small whites in Saint-Domingue are analogous to the class of people who came to be known as the sans-culottes, those middle- and lower-class urban-dwellers who became the most radical foot-soldiers of the Revolution. For the most part, the small whites had come to Saint Domingue as fortune seekers. As historian David Gegas wrote, quote, Domingue was pervaded by a get rich quick atmosphere. End quote. The majority of Frenchmen who moved to Saint Domingue were of the typical stock of European colonists in this era lower class working men, occasionally petty criminals and debtors. The dream of these colonists was to acquire land, build up a plantation, And make enough profit to return home to France at their first opportunity and live a life of luxury. They would soon find, upon arriving in Saint-Domingue, that this was easier said than done. The costs of buying land and building up plantation infrastructure were rather prohibitive. Many took out loans to get started, and when their ventures failed, which they did more often than not, they found themselves entrapped in debt peonage. In the very early days of the Sandomang plantation economy, white indentured servants actually worked alongside enslaved Africans on the plantations. The crucial difference between the two, however, is that the white indentured servants, most of whom found themselves in this position thanks to outstanding debts, would be freed from their bondage after an agreed-upon period of time. After earning their freedom, some of these former indentured servants could then take out even more loans and try their hand again. The African slaves had no such options. Some found themselves unable or otherwise unwilling to return back to France empty-handed, so they tried to eke out a living performing menial but essential work in Saint-Domingue's urban centers. Some small whites also took on another role undesirable by the colony's wealthier inhabitants, that of the slave overseer. One former plantation manager wrote in 1814 of the lot of the slave overseer in detail quote, The young European overseer is, after only two days on the job, fully aware of how unpleasant his situation is, not only how tiring it is, but how little respect he gets from the owner or the manager. The zealous overseer sees everything that happens on the plantation and uses a few trusted slaves as spies. He makes his report every day by handing a note to the owner or the manager when he joins them at the table for breakfast. They scarcely pay attention to him. At the table, he sits at the lower end and does not look up. He doesn't dare say a word. The young man is a thousand times worse off than a shepherd's dog. He is even worse off if he is sensitive to the treatment of the blacks. If he looks as though he pities them, he will immediately be told, You don't know these scoundrels. Nature has made them to be slaves. We thought like you when we first came here, but we soon found out. If you want to get on in life, you must give up all European feelings when you come to the tropics. They aren't suited to the colonies. Little by little, the young man gets used to it. End quote. Some slave overseers were able to work their way up the ranks to become managers themselves and join the class of the big whites, but most did not. All too often, the fate of these small white fortune-seekers was to end up dead of some tropical disease or other, on the side of a road. The dream of those Europeans who emigrated to Saint-Domingue in this era was to become one of the big whites. This term refers primarily to wealthy plantation owners, but the term can be extrapolated to include people such as colonial administrators, judges, more successful merchants, and other white people in positions of power, wealth, and privilege. One subsection of the Big Whites who were absolutely essential for the maintenance of the plantation system were the managers, middlemen, who managed the day-to-day operations on the plantation on behalf of the actual owner. The majority of plantations on Sandomeng were owned by absentee owners, which is to say that they were owned by those who had accrued so much wealth that they were actually able to live out the final part of the Sandomeng domingue dream and move back to France to live fat off the spoils of their slaves' suffering and exploitation. Managers were hired to, in exchange for a rather significant cut of the plantation's profits, effectively run the plantations in their patron's stead. Their primary objective was to make as much money as humanly possible for the plantation, and this necessarily involved working the slaves for every ounce of labor they could. Once their labor had been completely expended, and a slave finally died of exhaustion, as they so often did, the manager was responsible for purchasing new slaves. The same same former plantation manager, whom I quoted at length earlier, in that very same document wrote about the thought processes that drove managers such as himself to make the sorts of decisions they did. Quote, He therefore keeps expenditure to a minimum, and works the slaves in such a way that, in a few years. He makes his fortune, but he destroys the workforce. Fifty new slaves are needed. The owner protests against such an expense, but soon calms down. It's all on credit. End quote. The manager was also responsible for handing down punishments to disobedient slaves, punishments that were performed by the lower-class slave drivers. In reading the writings of the Big Whites, indeed, Writings by the Big Whites formed the majority of primary sources on the Haitian Revolution, as they were the class of people on the island with the highest rates of literacy. One gets the sense that the Big Whites felt that their aforementioned power, wealth, and privilege were constantly under threat, from the rise of the free people of color, to the overbearing metropolitan government across the Atlantic, and to the ever-present specter of slave revolt. It must be remembered that the Big Whites were a minority of a minority on Saint-Domingue. They were outnumbered by the underclass of small whites, and, by the eve of the revolution, by the free people of color. And all three classes were dwarfed in numbers by the slaves, who at any given time since the mid-18th century made up the vast majority of the population in Saint-Domingue. Thus it is understandable that the Big Whites were all too painfully aware that their wealth and livelihoods were sitting upon a powder keg of racial social and economic tensions thus they made every effort to keep the small whites poor the free people of color disenfranchised and the slaves enslaved despite the fact that many absentee landlords in france used their newfound power and wealth to marry their way into the aristocracy the big white ruling class of saint Domingue developed a somewhat antagonistic relationship to the metropolitan government back in paris and their representatives in Saint-Domingue, the colonial bureaucracy. In the final days of the Ancien Regime, the Metropolitan Government attempted to enact a number of reforms that were intended to reinforce the Code Noir and grant a few more rights to slaves. The big whites of Saint-Domingue opposed such attempts to curb their absolute authority, which were made all the more insulting by the fact that Saint-Domingue lacked a colonial assembly That would give them some semblance of representation and autonomy while such things were the norm for their british neighbors another gripe the big whites had against the metropolitan government was the system of mercantilism it had put in place for its colonies or as they called it in the french context the exclusive under the exclusive colonies were only allowed to conduct trade with the metropole from the metropole's point of view this was perfectly logical as the primary purpose of the colonies was to benefit the mother country, and in return, the mother country would provide the colony with all of its needs. From the colonists' perspective, however, this was an unacceptable imposition on them. They stood to lose a lot of money they could be making by trading with other colonies in the region. Of course, a lucrative black market emerged that did indeed conduct illicit trade outside of the exclusive, mainly with the British and Spanish colonies elsewhere in the Caribbean. The Metropolitan Government cracked down hard on this sort of trade, providing fines and prison sentences to anyone caught with contraband, but the colonial administration tolerated the black market, as it made up an essential component of Saint-Domingue's economy. Indeed, many among the big whites began to believe that their interests were not best served by the current international status quo. Some had come to believe that they would receive a greater deal of autonomy as a British protectorate, while others believed it would be best for them to break away from the colonial system altogether and declare independence. Proponents of Saint-Domingue independence even adopted similar rhetoric espoused by the American revolutionaries not a decade earlier, invoking the concept of liberty against the tyrannical metropolitan government. Then, finally, we have the free people of color. The emergence of a large and somewhat prosperous class of free people of color was almost a demographic certainty due to a number of factors. To begin with, France, in the early modern period, had the largest population in Europe, but relatively few colonies that could serve as population release valves. So, Saint-Domingue received a relatively large-scale influx of European colonists, when compared to, say, Spanish Santo Domingo, for instance. Given the nature of this specific colonial venture, saint attracted mainly lower class, single men, and far fewer women. Among the white population, men outnumbered women by a ratio of 3 to 1. These men, being men, sought an outlet for sexual release, and they found it in the slave women who, as previously discussed, had little power to resist the sexual advances of white men. There were indeed laws in place to discourage this sort of miscegenation, but they were of little use. While most of the small white colonists shunned the institution of marriage, some did indeed free the slaves they procreated with and married them, thereby starting families of mixed African and European heritage. These mixed-race children and their mothers would come into possession of whatever property the father owned upon his death thus setting into motion a trend whereby, generation, generation, inheritance after inheritance, free people of color were able to start down the path towards becoming a fairly wealthy, propertied class. European-born observers decried what they perceived as racial contamination. One French soldier stationed in Saint-Domingue during the American Revolutionary War wrote, quote, The mulatto and the quadroon, slang terms for people of mixed-race heritage, women, taking advantage of their debauchery, have com- have competed with white women for the hearts of white men, and they have won. This means they have the social elite and the majority of colonists for lovers. They dress with taste and use their appearance, their height, and their walk as an invitation to seduction. In truth, they put this stylishness to very good use, as a sort of call to sensuous pleasure. Many women of the color, whether through the inclin... Many women of color, whether through inclination or lack of resources, act most like prostitutes, end quote. The portrayal of women of color as seductresses was a rather common trope in colonial writing. They were thought to be more inherently sexual than their white counterparts. But this was an ex post facto rationalization that European observers manufactured to explain away the existence of a growing class of people, who had both African and European heritage. In the early days of the colony, there were very few laws pertaining to the free people of color, simply by way of the fact that there really weren't that many of them. However, as time went on, their numbers increased steadily. They numbered some 30,000 strong on the eve of the revolution. Initially, the free people of color competed with the small whites in the cities, often taking on the jobs that were unsuitable for slaves, but ones that whites still didn't want to do. For instance, many served in the colony's militia, and police forces. Such kind of service was thought to be so unbecoming of whites that free people of color actually made up a majority of the colony's internal security forces. There, they were tasked with hunting down bands of maroons in the mountains and putting down the occasional slave insurrection. The colonial administrators of Saint-Domingue increasingly began to rely on free people of color exclusively to maintain order in the colony. In 1779, an officer of the French army named Charles d'Eisting arrived on Saint-Domingue, seeking recruits to join him in a military expedition to North America, where they would provide assistance to the rebellious colonists of the fledgling United States in their struggle against the British. Some 1,500 or so men, the vast majority of whom were free people of color, enlisted in d'Eisting's unit, which was christened the Chasseurs Volontaires de Saint-Domingue, the volunteers of Saint-Domingue sailed north in September of 1779 and assisted the Americans as they besieged the southern city of Savannah. Although the volunteers from saint fought valiantly, the battle ended in defeat for the Franco-American coalition. The volunteers from saint never again saw action, but nevertheless gained valuable combat experience, and what's more, they earned some degree of respect and prestige for their class. A number of notable future leaders of the Haitian Revolution were amongst its ranks, including one 22-year-old drummer boy named Henri Christophe, who would go on to be Haiti's first and only emperor. As the population of the free people of color increased exponentially, so too did their economic strength. Throughout the 18th century, free people of color were able to purchase land of their own, to build plantation infrastructure, and even to own slaves. As historian Carolyn Fick writes, By the eve of the revolution, the free people of color had nearly achieved economic parity with Saint-Domingue's white population. They owned one-third of the colony's sugar plantations, one-fourth of its slaves, and one-third of its total real estate. The big whites viewed the socioeconomic rise of the free people of color with growing trepidation. For the free people of color to become equal with the whites was a major threat to the white supremacy that undergirded Saint-Domingue's society. So they used every means at their disposal to disenfranchise them, to deny them the civil and political rights that all whites enjoyed. A quote from Laurent Dubois. Over the 18th century, law, economy, and discourse worked together to produce a set of racist practices that, once in place, appeared to many to be both natural and permanent. End quote. Another quote from historian Carolyn Fick. The free people of color were made to understand that, on no uncertain terms, in spite of their education, training, skills, and economic successes, that their racial and slave origins made it impossible for them to enjoy equality with whites. End quote. So, to recap, on the eve of the revolution in France, and subsequently in Saint-Domingue, there were four classes of people who made up the society of Saint-Domingue. The slaves, the free people of color, the big whites, and the small whites, and all of them absolutely despised one another. The slaves hated the big whites and the free people of color who kept them in chains and exploited their labor, as well as the small whites who looked down on them, and who made up the ranks of the sadistic slave overseers. The free people of color internalized the racist attitudes of the whites, and therefore looked down on slaves as lesser beings, hence their willing participation in their exploitation. They hated the Small Whites, who, despite lacking their economic clout, enjoyed privileges that they still could not, and they hated the Big Whites, who also outranked them socially, and actively worked to deny them the civil and political rights they felt they deserved. The Big Whites basically looked down on everyone. Their attitude toward the Small Whites was analogous to the way the aristocrats of France looked at the commoners before the Revolution. They saw the free people of color as a threat to their continued dominance and to the very system of slavery itself. As for the slaves, they saw them as their property. The small whites, like all other white people, looked down on the slaves as something less than human and not deserving of respect. They envied the economic prosperity of the free people of color, as well as the wealth and privilege of the big whites. With all these racial, social, and economic dynamics at play, Is it really any wonder that upon the outbreak of revolution in France, Saint-Domingue would be engulfed in a massive internecine conflict? Of course, it's easy to see the fault lines forming in Saint-Domingue society, with the benefit of retrospect. But, as C.L.R. James wrote, How could anyone fear for such a wonderful colony? Slavery seemed eternal and the profits mounted. Never before, and perhaps never since, has the world seen anything proportionately so dazzling as pre-revolutionary Saint-Domingue, end quote. Now, this episode has gone on for quite a bit longer than they normally do, so I think this would be a good place to end things for the time being. I hope I have provided you with a rather vivid sketch of the social situation in Saint-Domingue in the period immediately leading up to the revolution. Do be sure to join us again in two weeks' time, as we begin our narrative in earnest, as revolution breaks out in France in the fateful year of 1789 what effects would it have on the colony of Saint-Domingue? Would the spark lit in France be enough to ignite this Caribbean powder keg? I'm sure you already know the answer, but you'll have to tune in again in two weeks to hear all of the sordid details. In the meantime, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, or anything else of that nature you wish to address to me, you can contact me via Twitter or Facebook, links to which can be found in the episode description. Alternatively, you can always email me at historiadramaticapod at gmail.com. Additionally, be sure to check out the Patreon for access to monthly bonus content starting in October. Until two weeks from now, this has been the Historia Dramatica Podcast. I'm your host, Willem Connor. signing off.